Good morning. Have you ever felt like nobody sees me? Like maybe you're invisible? Maybe even just saying that you go back to a teacher that never seemed to acknowledge you or maybe a coach that never seemed to put you in the game or overlooked you again and again or maybe even recently just standing in line checking out and two cashiers are just talking over you as if you're just right there invisible. Or maybe it hits closer to home and it's your parents who seem to give your sibling all the attention. Or maybe it's your grown children who rarely call, never come to visit, and you wonder if they ever even think of you. You ever feel like nobody sees you? No one cares? I think actually we would be astonished at how many beings there are who have eyes on you. The Apostle Paul calls them principalities and authorities of the air. The fact is there's a lot of entities watching you. They don't care for you. They don't want what's best for you, but they see you. But the good news is the Lord of all cares for you most of all. And he sees you. If you're visiting with us, we are in a study of the names of God. Last week, we talked about Adonai, the name that's referred to God as Lord. He is Lord of all. Today, we're going to talk about Elroy, the God who sees. Last week, we were in Genesis 15. Today, we're actually just turning over to chapter 16. And again, just to set the stage of the context before we get into the passage, Abram had heard the call of God to go to the land of Canaan. And he went there because of a promise that God was going to make him the father of many nations. Well, 10 years had passed. We talked about that in chapter 15. No baby. God took him out and had him to look at the stars. We talked about that last week. Abram had become impatient. You know, he was wondering maybe the heir would come through Eleazar, the heir of his house. But God said, no, it's going to come through you. But Abram wasn't the only one becoming impatient. Because when we turn to chapter 16, we read about his wife, Sarah, at this point, Sarah becoming impatient. Now, she had an idea that sounds foreign to us, but was not that uncommon in their culture. She wanted Abraham to take her handmaiden, her Egyptian handmaiden, and have a child through her, through Hagar. She was tired of waiting. She seemed to think after 10 years, maybe this is the way that God is going to bring a child to Abraham. But before we become too quick to criticize her, I think we do the same thing today. God makes us a promise. It's not yet coming to fruition. And we try in our own way to help God out. You ever found yourself doing that? How can I help him do what he said he was going to do? So Abraham consented with Sarah's plan. Hagar became pregnant. And the Bible says she blamed Hagar. Now, there's no logic there. It was her idea. Then the Bible says that she got mad at Abram. I don't understand that one either. Now it's Abram's fault. And we might fault Sarai for a lack of self-control about letting her emotions get the best of her. But Abram was short on courage. He did nothing to help. Basically, he told Sarah, will you take care of it? If you keep reading in the story, you know, the Bible says, Sarah, this good woman was not so good. She dealt harshly with Hagar. 
Now, we don't know the details, but we do know it was bad enough that this pregnant handmaiden ran away into the desert. Basically a death sentence. It had to be pretty severe for her to take that measure. And that's where we pick up the story. This pregnant Egyptian handmaiden in the desert, all alone, feeling very insignificant. The scripture on the screen, Genesis 16, verses 7 through 13. You may want to read along in your own Bible. Now the angel of Yahweh found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. He said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. And the angel of Yahweh said to her, return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. Moreover, the angel of Yahweh said to her, I will greatly multiply your descendants so they will be too many to count. The angel of Yahweh said to her further, behold, you are with child and you will bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael. Because Yahweh has given heed to your affliction. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him. And he will live in the east of all of his brothers. Then she called the name of Yahweh who spoke to her. You are a God who sees. El Roy, for she said, have I even remained alive here after seeing here? Hagar found out. That this God of Abram, this God of Sarai, was also the God of Hagar. That he saw her too. And he cared for her. Even though she could run away from them, she could not run away from him. And Hagar had a a very up-close experience with God's omniscience. Now, we don't read the word omniscience in our Bibles, but the concept is there again and again and again. Let me share just a few of many uh, scriptures. Isaiah 40, verse 13 through 14. Who has understood the mind of Yahweh or instructed him as counselor? Whom did Yahweh consult to enlighten him and who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Obviously, these are all rhetorical questions because he knows everything. Think about what we know about God. You can't tell God anything that he doesn't already know. You can't surprise God. You can't confuse God. God possesses eternal, intrinsic, perfect, and absolute knowledge of all things. Again, scripture after scripture. Here's another one, Psalm 33, verse 13. From the heaven Yahweh looks down and sees all mankind. From his dwelling place he watches all who live on the earth. He who forms the hearts of all, who considers everything they do. Proverbs 15, 3, the eyes of Yahweh are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. Hebrews 4, 13, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So whenever the Bible talks about God or an angel of the Lord asking a question, it's not because he's seeking knowledge, because he already knows the answer. He asked the question because he's trying to pull that person into the conversation so they'll reveal what God already knows. He wants the person to understand their need to be honest and open before the Lord. Even when we pray to God, we're not telling him anything he doesn't already know. He's not waiting for us to tell us who's sick so he can respond to our request and and make them well. He already knows everything. 
Have you ever heard people when they're especially leading a prayer in a group where they will give God information, like they'll pray for their sick and they'll list the room number in the hospital? You know, that's for our benefit, not for God's. And we might snicker when that happens because we understand God knows that. Now, we need to know the details, but God already knows all of that and even more. The reason we pray is not to let God in on things that he doesn't know about. The reason we pray is to line up our desires with his will. God wants us to demonstrate our trust in his power and his faithfulness. But when we think about this God who sees everything, that can make us a little uncomfortable. In fact, maybe we might not even like it that God sees everything. It bothers them. And we think about the all-seeing eye. I was looking into that a little bit. Kind of interesting. You know, we've got that on the back of our uh, $1 bill. The all-seeing eye, that whole imagery doesn't come of Scripture. That's a whole other story there. But the fact that God does see everything is in the Bible. I couldn't help but I think about my own childhood. I remember my mother telling me she had eyes in the back of her head. Did your mom tell you that? They weren't there, but boy, she could see what was going on in the back seat. Here's the point, Genesis 16. Hagar was not bothered by God seeing everything. She took it as a source of comfort. It was not just the God who sees. In fact, some English translations render it the God who sees me. That is who he is. No one is too small. No one is insignificant. God sees everyone. Know what David wrote about God's knowledge of you. Psalm 139, verses 1 through 10. Oh, Lord, you've searched me and known me. You know when I sit down, when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, oh, Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Remember how Jesus explained how God sees it all. Matthew 10, 29 and following. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Think about that. Did Jesus ever speak a lie, anything untrue, anything that couldn't be 100% trusted as authentic and believable? And yet he explains that our Father's knowledge is so detailed, so intimate, and then even uses this this explanation of numbering the hairs on your head. Why would that matter? Why would he use that kind of of imagery? Not that he knows those uh, those finite details, but that he cares that much. That's how much he cares about you. So what does it mean to know the God who sees you? If you've got a study guide on the back of the bulletin, there's four observations I want us to make from this text. Number one, Elroy means he knows all my sins. Now, we need to start there. That's not the most pleasant place to start, but we need to start there. Why do men love the darkness more than light? Remember Jesus talked about that? Why do men love the darkness more than light? Because their deeds are evil. 
And why does so much crime and ugliness and sin happen at nighttime? There's a sense of where it's covered, it's hidden, and people don't see it. It's just kind of the way we're wired, the way we think about things. And I admit, sometimes it seems like evil deeds of the ungodly go unnoticed, go unpunished. Like they get away with it. You ever feel that way? Like, God, do you see this? Are you seeing what I'm seeing? You wonder about that? I think people of faith have struggled with this throughout time. In fact, if you go back and you read the Psalms, you will sense that question repeated again and again. God, do you not see what's going on? How much longer are you going to sit on your hands and allow this? Are you seeing what I'm seeing? Again and again, this is expressed. And even though men try to hide, what the Bible tells us is that the bright light of God's omniscience shines on it all. It might be dark here. They may be doing it in secret. But God sees it all. And it exposes every evil deed that men do. But here's a question. Where's the comfort in that? Why is that a good thing? If God sees all my evil deeds, even my evil thoughts in my mind, remember Jesus talking about that, he knew the thoughts of the people, even before they said them. Where's the comfort in that? Because this, I put this on the screen, God knows everything about you and still loves you. God sees it all, he knows it all, and he still loves you. Your sins do not surprise God. God never sees you blow it and and think, well, I didn't see that coming. He doesn't look around and say, well, I didn't know she had that kind of tongue, or I didn't know he was so unforgiving, or I didn't know she was so greedy, or, or he was so selfish. He knows. None of us surprise him. He knows every flaw, every weakness in your character, and he still loves you. If you miss the lesson on Yahweh, But then God gave himself to Moses. I want to encourage you to go back and listen to that because there in Exodus 34, God describes himself. And I mentioned in that lesson how again and again and again, other authors of the Bible will repeat that. And here's one where David does in Psalm 103. Look at verses 8 through 13. It's going to sound familiar because he's again quoting what God had said earlier. Yahweh is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so Yahweh shows compassion to those who fear him. That's the God we serve. That's the good Father that we have. And again, that word compassion is an emotional term. Not just an unconditional love, whether we deserve it or not, but He feels for us. He loves us. In the best sense of that word, in her book, The Whisper Test, Marianne Bird talks about what it was like to be a child born with a cleft palate. She said it was not easy at all. To have people stare at her, and especially at her face. Starting school was especially difficult, because the children would not just stare at her face, they would ask her questions. 
about why her lips were so deformed. She found it easier to lie and say that she fell on a piece of glass and cut her lip because she thought that would give uh, more understanding that if she told them she was born that way. When she was in second grade, she had a round but pleasant teacher, as she writes in her book, Mrs. Leonard. And Mrs. Leonard changed everything. It was the day when they had the hearing test, kind of a preliminary uh, test where the teacher would just line up the students one at a time and she would whisper something into their ear and then they would repeat what they heard. And of course it was a problem, then they would go for more extensive testing. And so it was very simple things that she would say, like the sky is blue or are those your shoes? And the students would just repeat whatever the teacher whispered. When it was Mary Ann's turn, Miss Leonard said seven words that changed everything. She whispered to little Mary Ann, I wish you were my little girl. At that moment, Mary Ann realized that someone besides her family could truly love her. Do you know God knows all about your flaws? He knows even about the ones that you're not even aware of. And he loves you anyway. God made a way for your sins to be covered from his sight so that you can be freed. Look at Romans 5 verse 8. Short verse, but so powerful. God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now God tells us to confess our sins, but that's not so that he can find out what we've been up to. It's just good for us to acknowledge our sins. And you can experience the comfort of his compassion. See, God knows my sins. That's not the bad news. That's good news, but there's more. Here's a second observation. Elroy means he knows all about my service. He knows all the good that you do. And this is important because God detests those who make a show of their religion. He is not into that at all. So much of Jesus' ministry was, was addressing that because that had become so commonplace, so norm. And, and the people despised it. And, and, and Jesus revealed what well, God does too. No one gets credit for that. God knows every heart. He's not deceived by any of that. Look what Jesus said in Matthew 6, verses 1 through 4. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogue or in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. For some, it's all about being seen. And Jesus just speaks boldly to that and said, well, they got their credit. They got their reward, man's attention. It's really what they were after. That was what was motivating them at the first place. Jesus said, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. When you pray, you go to the closet. When you fast, wash your face. In each of these times, notice the promise. I put this on the screen. Matthew 4, 6, and 18. Same words. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. God has noticed every selfless gift. He's heard every kind word. He's read every note that you've sent. And to know that ought to be enough 
God sees. When you do good, when you get the door, when you turn the other cheek, when you go the second mile, he sees everything. Jean Frederick Overlin was a minister in Germany in the 18th century. He was walking one day in the winter and got caught in a blizzard. He didn't know it was coming. Totally just caught him off guard. He did not know if he was going to make it at all. And about that time, the wagon came by, and the man gave him a lift, took him to a village, paid for someone to take care of him. Overland asked the fellow, who are you? But the man wouldn't give him his name. And he said, well, at least tell me your name so that I can remember you to God in my prayers. Well, the man knew that Overland was a minister. And so he said this, tell me first, who is the name of the Good Samaritan? Overland said, well, we don't know the name of the Good Samaritan. So the man replied, if you cannot give me his name, sir, then please allow me to withhold mine. Here's the point. I put this on the screen. The one who acknowledges Elroy has no great need to be acknowledged. I think we all need to take note of that. When you acknowledge God sees you, then you have... You're not hungry for others to pat you on the back or to see what you did or, or to get the credit of others. Because you're serving the God who sees it all. He sees my heart. God knows what I do for others. God is a witness to everything I ever attempted to do that is good and pure and holy. He sees everything. And Jesus says, if we're going to follow him, it's not about being seen by men. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. That's between you and God. You live by faith to be seen by the God who sees it all. So he knows about your sin. He knows about the service, all the good that you do. Here's a third one. Elroy means he knows all about my sufferings. Some of you, as we were reading through about Hagar, you may have identified because maybe you're suffering. Because we've all had those moments, those events, those, those times. Sometimes it's years Sometimes it's a life of suffering. Some of you have been thrown out, cast away, rejected. Was it your fault? Think of Hagar. This was not her idea. She was just doing what she was told to do, going along with her, her boss's instructions, being mistreated. Now she's all alone. Did you ever wonder where God was when all that was happening? Well, write this one down. Healing begins with the recognition that Elroy saw it all. Healing begins with the recognition that Elroy saw it all. He knows the sin that was committed against you. And he's promised that justice will eventually be done. God saw your pain. God knows your misery. And God will make it right. But also understand this. God, God saw every tear you cried. Every time where you've been disheartened, every time where you've wept, Psalm 56, verse 8, you have taken account of my wanderings, put my tears in your bottle, are they not in your book? What David is saying here, Lord, I did not cry a tear that you did not see. God sees it all. This man after God's own heart also wrote Psalm 34, verse 18, Yahweh is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. See, even when you cannot see God, God sees you. He knows it all. He knows about your suffering. 
I thought we could just stop right here, take this mic and walk around the room, and some of you share your suffering, things you've been through, where you knew God was with you and he saw everything, real life, real circumstances, real pain, real suffering. So let me ask a question. Do you think God saw what was happening to Hagar and doesn't see what's happening to you? It's the same God, same ability to see everything, everyone. God knows your sins, he knows your service, he knows your suffering. Here's one last thing, and maybe the most important, God knows what he's doing. This God who sees it all, he knows what he's doing. See, God sees you, and he understands your situation, your details, and your, and your problem, your life. But he also sees the big picture. He also sees eternity. He also sees his divine plan, things that we cannot see. God knows what he is doing. So the question then is, why do we worry so much? If God sees the big picture, God's in control, He's Lord of all, we talked about that last week, why do we worry so much? If He sees our struggles, our concerns, our cares, our trials, why do we, just like the world, and consume with worry? William Cowper was one of England's greatest songwriters. We sing several of his hymns even today. He lived in the 18th century. When you read about him, what you find out is he dealt with what then they called mental anguish. I wonder if today we would call that chemical depression. Several times, William tried to take his own life. It was that bad. He was so despondent. One night, he hired a coach to take him to the Thames River so he could jump off the bridge and end it all. But as usual for London, fog rolled in, but this was especially thick. The, the, the driver got confused, took several wrong turns. William got tired and frustrated of waiting, so he just said, I'm not going to walk. And he got out of the carriage, took a few steps, and discovered he was right back at his own front door. He walked inside and wrote these words. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his steps upon the sea and rides upon the storm. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you need, you so much dread, are big with mercy and shall break with blessings on your head. God sees the big picture, even when we cannot. I believe that's why Paul was able to write Philippians 1, 6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God sees everything. God knows everything. God knows what he's doing to the point that he is going to work out his plan in your life. Every single one of us. Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. We cannot wrap our brains around it. How God is in control. He sees it all. And, and I hope this message is of great encouragement to you. Here's two things I want to close with that we can learn. We know Elroy, the God who sees. We can practice transparent honesty. There's something refreshing to know that he knows. 
We can be real. We can be honest. There is no hiding. Isn't it interesting? When Adam and Eve sinned, their reaction was to cover up and to hide. That was their reaction to what they had done. But you can't hide from God. Psalm 90 verse 8. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. See, from beginning to end, the Bible never says to cover up. In fact, it says just the opposite. Confess. Come clean. God already knows. So just tell him that you know as well. They tell of a story of a man who drove one of the early Model T cars. And one day it broke down on him and he was trying to, to work on it. And he couldn't get it to work. And, and about that time, this nice dressed man was driving by and he stepped out and said, may I help? And he tinkered a little bit, got it to crank. And, and the man was so grateful and he said, how did you know what to do? And that fine dressed man put out his hand and said, I'm Henry Ford. And I designed these things and I should be able to make them work. God designed us. God made us. He created us. He knows us. He sees us. That is who He is. And that is His name. So don't pretend nothing's wrong. Don't fool yourself to think that God doesn't see it because God sees it. Tell your maker and practice transparent honesty. And then number two, when you know Elroy, the God who sees, we can experience transcendent serenity. I was reading that, that phrase and I thought, let me come up with another word instead of transcendent serenity. But I couldn't think of a better one. It's, it's transcendent because we can't explain it. We, we, it's beyond our knowledge, our comprehension. So what Hagar learned is not only that God is watching you, God is watching over you. Hagar ran away. It was a horrible situation. There was no winning for her. And at that moment, God appeared and revealed himself to her in this marvelous way. See, the Bible challenges us to let our knowledge of his knowledge to be a comfort to us. What the Bible says over and over again that He knows. He knows. He sees. And that's good news. Philippians 4, verses 4 through 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. The Lord is near. God is close to you. He sees everything that's going on in your life. Again, that's omniscience. Friends, that's who He is. He's everywhere. He's with you. No matter if you've run away, or you've drifted away, or somebody pushed you away, no matter how insignificant you may feel, God is near. Hagar found that out, and we can too. You want to know what happens when you know that God is near? When you believe that God sees it all and is right there with you? Well, keep reading. Look at verse 6. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, 
which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? It means you can have this serenity, this peace that, that surpasses comprehension. We can't say we know what it is other than it comes from God. That's why we can have peace in this dark, dark world. We can have peace that those who don't know God, they will never understand. We know that he's near. So that's the last question I put on the outline there. Do you have the peace in knowing Elroy? Not just peace. Anybody can have peace. But this transcendent serenity, this peace that passes understanding. Because here's the message that God wants you to hear. I wish you were my child. Think about it. Verse after verse after verse talks about not just the God of the heavens, the God who created, the God, God the Father. It's God the Father. And think how many times when Jesus came in the flesh would talk about his father. He would tell stories about a father. And what God wants you to know is that he wants you to be his child. That's our invitation. Just before Jesus left, he was with his disciples. And the night before his crucifixion, what he said was, I will not leave you as orphans. Do you remember that line? I will not leave you as orphans. We have a father who is compassionate. He sees you and he wants you to be his child. If you've not yet said yes to Jesus, we're going to sing a song to encourage you to make Jesus your Lord. Let him wash your sins away in baptism as you confess that you believe that he is the son of God. Or if we can pray for you in any way in your walk with the Lord, would you come as we stand and sing to encourage you?